0: My dad used to say, Canada is obsessed with the United States, and the United States is obsessed with the United States. Um, (laughs) uh, Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the
1: intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States.
2: Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. welcome back to Canusa street everybody i'm scotty greenwood with the canadian american business council and i'm joined with my partner in crime chris sands at the wilson center welcome chris
1: thanks scotty nice to see you again
2: good to see you listen chris we had on our last episode a really phenomenal discussion with peter van praeg and we were talking about ukraine he had been to ukraine recently he's got lots of friends there uh and we talked about what's happening and how we can help. Uh, we want to have him back. And, and he's agreed, which is lovely. Um, so so I'll, I'll turn it over to you to introduce him properly again, just in case uh, people are tuning in for the first time. But I also want to ask you, Chris, uh, if you'll talk about how you know Peter, because in the last episode, I talked about how I know Peter, which is I've been attending the Halifax International Security Forum as a participant, which is... I think one of Canada's best kept secrets, it's one of the most important peace and security conferences in the world. Maybe it's the most important conference. I would put it uh, up there with Munich, uh, which we know happened a couple of weeks before the war and the president of Ukraine was calling out to the world to. Uh, wake up to what was happening with Russia. So Halifax is right there with Munich for sure, uh, and I'd, I've seen that with my own with my own eyes, uh, having participated and been honored to be invited uh, for many many years. But you have a backstory with Peter, so maybe you could uh, maybe you could explain your backstory, and then we'll we'll go straight to our dialogue.
1: Sure. Well, um, thanks, Scotty. Just for. So everyone knows we're talking about the same guy. Uh, Peter Van Craig is a founding president of the Halifax International Security Forum and previously served as senior director for foreign policy at the DC Washington, D.C.-based German Marshall Fund of the United States and as deputy vice president of programs of the National Endowment for Democracy in Washington. He, Before that, he served as chief of party for the National Democratic Institute, both in the Soviet Union and in Turkey, uh, or the former Soviet Union and Turkey. Uh, and in 2006, 2007, Peter served as a senior policy advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada. But before all of that, he was his father's son, and I knew his dad, David Van Prague, because David would bring down journalism students. He was a professor of journalism at Carleton University. He'd bring down journalism students to Washington to go to a White House press briefing or a State Department press briefing and uh i i somehow made the tour and it was great to be able to talk to his students some of whom have gone on to very successful careers in international journalism so uh, off to a good start and i remember it was one of those uh one of those sessions i think after and i was at the center for strategic international studies then uh that david said you know i'd love you to talk to my son he's interested in you know democracies interested in in the world the international relations think tanks uh and I, This does happen to me. It's because I'm a pedantic middle-aged guy. So people think, oh, you know, he's the kind of person who will dispense advice at the drop of a hat, which is generally true. Even though I wasn't that old then, not quite middle-aged. Um, and I first met Peter and I was impressed from the get-go. Everything his dad said, but also everything I observed in that first meeting that this was an extremely promising, bright, really engaged and intellectually, uh, curious person about the wider world has been fulfilled with a career that has gone as I just mentioned from Canada to former Soviet Union to Washington and now he's one of the leading uh, thinkers but more important connectors of the international security community worldwide. As you said, uh, Scotty, like the Munich Security Conference family, the Halifax Security uh, Conference family or forum family, is uh, is robust and includes everybody who's anybody and a lot of people who are going to become somebody's so uh great to have you peter thank you for coming back for a second episode it's my pleasure chris and i don't i mean it's nice
0: to hear that reminiscing um i don't know how it's possible but you haven't aged in uh, 30 years uh i mean and i mean that it's incredible actually
2: it's maddening to be honest
1: <laughs> i i know I, I know. Well, our, our listeners won't know this. I am just jealous that you have a, a beard with not a speck of gray in it.
0: Well, I got a little gray, but but the, <laughs> the, the beard is there because I don't have. people might not know, but I'm completely bald. So anyway, and I wasn't when, when you and I first uh,
1: met each other, which was really nearly 30 years ago, actually. Uh, it's quite amazing. And I, I never thought of your primary characteristics being your hair. It was what was in the head. So that at least is still there, which I'm glad about.
2: Well, you know, you know, Chris, um I it's wonderful that you knew Peter's dad and um I know how proud a dad uh he must have been of Peter and all of his accomplishments and I know Peter lost his dad, but I also you knew his dad and just because I'm, you know, younger and more hip than you, I know Peter's kids and you know, oh. how cool is it that his kids get to experience Uh, what happens in Halifax every year and see their dad in action. But also, you know, they might meet world leaders there. I met Ehud Barak and Condoleezza Rice. And, uh, you know, it really is a who's who. Uh, Anyway, let's talk about the Halifax Security Forum for a minute, um, Peter, in the context of Ukraine. But I want to widen the lens a little bit. I want to, I want to, I want to have a broader view here. um, And that is, it's hard to think about Russia's ambitions um, and aggression towards Ukraine without also thinking about what designs China may have, for example, on Taiwan. And I I raise this uh, because you've been so active on illuminating how complex the issues are with China. And I would also say you've been fearless in terms of what you're doing with the people of Hong Kong, whom you honored. And so maybe if you could put into context for us the Ukrainian-Russian situation into context also with China, China-Russia, and uh, and China in general. So so easy, light little question there to start us off, if you would.
0: Yeah. Um, well, Scotty, uh, Chris, I'm, I'm delighted to do it. I'll do my best on this. But as you said, this is... You know, this is the stuff of uh, volumes and books, and um, and everybody has an opinion. So I'll do my best to, to tell you what what I'm hearing right now. Um, I am uh, I am in touch with folks um, uh, both in Taiwan and in and in China. Um, so Vladimir Putin you know, traveled to uh, Beijing uh, at the beginning of the Olympic Games, um, and he, together with uh, the Chinese leader, put out a 5,000-word uh, agreement, and I have to tell you that I did not read all 5,000 words. I've read the summaries, and um, the summaries uh, suggest um, a very close partnership between uh, between China and Russia, between Russia and China, um, and that is not something that is straightforward. Russia and China are not natural uh, friends; they're they they've been competitors for centuries. Um, now, what has been reported uh, is that President Xi of China. Um, asked President Putin of Russia not to do anything during the Olympics. Um, and I think the evidence suggests because he did uh, make his announcement as his invasion as soon as the Olympics ended um, that uh, President Putin uh, you know did as, as he was asked. And so the question now is, and this is really quite alarming, is essentially has Russia become a client state of, of China? Um, and I think that's something that needs to be explored. I think it's I think it's more or less true. Um, I also have folks who are telling me that China is already in Eastern Russia without Russia's permission. They've they've gone in with huge teams, and they are ripping apart Russia's uh, forests. These are forests that are untouched, that have gorgeous hardwood. Uh, if you follow Canada and the United States, you understand the importance of softwood lumber. Um, but this is, uh, the Chinese are just going in and just taking uh, Russian lumber. Um, and there's nothing that the Russians can do about it. Um, the what I, I, the another alarming thing that I heard is that essentially the agreement between she and Putin was that she was going to watch how the invasion of Ukraine transpired, and then he was going to take action of some sort in Taiwan. Um, and that because the Ukrainian invasion has been slowed, uh, largely as we talked about last time. Uh, Due to the incredible courage and the bravery of the Ukrainian people and their leader, uh, President Zelensky, um, this is now making the Chinese leadership rethink exactly uh, what they are going to do in Taiwan. And I think there's some. So there are there is some good news uh, coming out uh, on the other side of the Eurasian landmass. Um, the other thing that is good about this, uh, as we discussed uh, last time, is that Putin's going to lose. Putin is going to lose this adventure. uh, And the result of China being so close to Putin is that this is going to end up being a loss for China as well.
2: Let me just talk about that a little bit, because in in our last discussion, one of the reasons Putin will lose is the incredible resolve of the Ukrainian people and we just see it in every single interaction every interview the Ukrainians have no doubt that they're going to win and they're just they're going to make it happen you know and you think about Ukraine and Russia and they have a lot of common history they you know they're they're family much like Canada and the United States are family so so how does that compare with China Taiwan you know would would the Taiwanese have the same kind of resolve should there be an amphibious landing from china on their shores that the that the ukrainians have you think
0: um i i think so um taiwan um in many ways even is is in many ways even a more developed democracy uh than ukraine um and taiwan has done incredible work in the last 30 years uh, to build up its its democracy um you know, I was in Taipei right before the uh, pandemic started, and and it is, um, you know, it is a modern, vibrant, safe, dynamic place. And uh, talking to Taiwan's leaders and people on the street, they are incredibly proud of what they've built. And so, you mentioned an amphibious landing. An amphibious landing is very difficult to do. Um, my understanding. Uh, is that the Chinese are not quite there yet with, their, with, with what they need to do. Um, and, but more than that, watching what's going on in Ukraine, um, I'm quite sure they are rethinking uh, any plans that they might have had for, uh, for a direct amphibious assault. I'm more concerned um, about some type of um, internal, um, you know, just bringing in main, people from mainland China, uh, covertly uh, and some type of subversion inside the island uh, is something that I'm I'm more concerned with at, at, at this juncture.
1: Peter, I think personally that it, it is because of Canada's long-standing openness to uh, to newcomers, uh, refugees, immigrants. But something that I think a lot of our listeners don't know is that there is a robust Ukrainian community in Canada. Uh, that has been has been around for a long time, um, and also, for that matter, a robust Chinese Canadian community uh, with many people who've come from Hong Kong. How, if you could characterize those communities a little bit, maybe for our listeners, but also, um, how does that engage Canadians and the Canadian Defense Ministry and the Foreign Ministry and and Prime Ministers? Uh, in these conflicts overseas, they are a long way from Canada, and yet, in some ways, even more than the United States, Canadians are on the edge of their seats watching these events and and thinking about them. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: I think it's very important to note that Canadians, in many ways, more than Americans, uh, you know, at the at the personal level, uh, um, are feel that they are more a part of the world, that they're closer to some of these things than Americans do. America, you know, um, uh, I mentioned my dad earlier. My dad used to say uh, um, Canada is obsessed with the United States and the United States is obsessed with the United States. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: um, um so you know, Canada is a smaller country. Canada does have to uh, consider how it spends its money more carefully, um, how it spends its defense dollars, how it spends its its foreign ministry dollars. Um, and so it, you know, un, you know, even though Canada is, you know, has interest in the Pacific, has interest in Europe, it's got, you know, um, the Arctic to think about. Um, it can't. Uh, it doesn't have the same resources as the United States, and so you know Canada does have to prioritize a little bit differently. And part of that has to do with some of the communities um, in Canada, and the Ukrainian community is huge. Uh, it's huge. It's a it's a, it's a it's a million voters. So it's more than a million people, uh, and um, it is largely out west, but it's in it's in Manitoba, Saskatchewan. In Alberta, but there's there's Ukrainian communities in Toronto as well, um, and these are these are activists who have been pushing the Canadian government to be on the right side of the Ukraine issue for many many years. And uh, you know, I'm happy to say that Canada has been on the right side of the Ukraine issue for for, for a long time now. The uh, Chinese diaspora in the United in uh, Canada is a little bit different. We have Hong Kong Chinese. There's also Taiwan Chinese, and there's also mainland Chinese. Um, and unlike um, Russian, uh, unlike Ch- Chinese, eff- unlike Russian efforts to um, sort of to integrate uh, into these communities that have not been successful, the Chinese government's efforts at integrating into these communities in Canada and in the United States. Um, have been uh, successful. So, you know, for, for example, Chinese language community newspapers now essentially are all run by the Chinese Communist Party in Beijing. So it's very difficult uh, now um, for um, Chinese speakers uh, in Canada to get Chinese news uh, that's that's independent. Um, and so China's very active, you know, Probably not not supposed to say this, but it's, it's been a while now. But when I worked at Canada's Foreign Ministry, I had to uh, I had um, to remove um, some Canadian from some Chinese spies uh, from the the Chinese mission, um, and we had to remove uh, Chinese spies who were working on Canadian university campuses. Uh, to recruit uh, chinese canadian students. Uh, and so these are you know this is now 50 uh, 15 16 17 years ago. Um, but you can only, you can expect that, that those efforts in canada and the united states have only have only increased.
2: Let's talk about this fraught relationship a little bit more with canada, us and china. A feature of the relationship over the last few years has been the fact that China captured the two, the so-called two Michaels. It was a very famous story: uh, two Canadian citizens who were in China uh, and imprisoned wrongfully in China um, for more than two years in retaliation for Canada uh, detaining the CFO of Huawei who the US, at the request of the U.S., who the U.S. had said violated sanctions agreements towards Iran. So complicated story. Anyway, the point is there were two Canadians in China that were captured and imprisoned. And in what I think, and that was a huge, massive diplomatic issue as between Canada, the United States and China. And it really colored the relationship for the last couple of years. And in a minor miracle, um, once they were released, one of the Michaels was at the Halifax Forum. Peter, so ha- how did you pull that off? Uh, how are the Michaels doing? And what's your view on that whole episode in our history?
0: Um, yeah, that's right, Scotty. Um, we were, you know, very proud to host um, Michael Kovrig at Halifax last year. Um, I think it was his first the first meeting that he went to. Um, that whole a- episode. Of the two Michaels being taken off uh, the streets in China and being held um, is an embarrassment. Uh, it shouldn't be considered an embarrassment for Canada and the United States. It should be an embarrassment for the Chinese government uh, that these are the tactics that a that a country that uh, wants to be part of the international system is going to is going to take. And so, these tactics um, are akin. To you know, and it's very important to understand the nature of these regimes. These are these are akin to Vladimir Putin's mindset, um, and so these are these are not governments that we can trust. These are, you know, what I like to say about uh, individuals and governments that lie is that um, liars are called liars because they lie, and very often, um, you know, you'll hear Vladimir Putin say something, and Western commentators will cling on to that one thing. As if he's telling the truth. Well, no, liars lie about everything, and the same is true. We don't like to think about it with the Chinese because the conflict with China is is frightening because China is so big uh, and its economy is so big. Um, but China's not a reliable partner. Um, China is, um, is is a problem, and that is why you know I am I, I I'm looking for the good in what's going on in Ukraine, and the good is that. Um, uh this relationship between china and russia was not fully baked um and that the the uh adventurism of putin is not going to be rewarded he's going to be punished for it and because uh china is is aligning himself with with uh with putin uh china is going to suffer the consequences as well
1: you know i certainly hope you're right about that but i want to talk about something that in the canada us uh relationship we talk about a lot seems like a perennial. I, you, you mentioned softwood lumber in the earlier one. That's another perennial. But one of the ones, one of the topics we often, uh, bicker over is Canada's defense spending and what Canada is prepared to do. And as you said very eloquently earlier in this podcast, you know, Canada is a smaller country. It has to uh, husband its resources carefully and make some strategic choices as it, as it goes forward. So what I'd like to ask you about is Canada's potential contribution here um and what it and what this crisis may mean for canada's defense spending down the road we've seen the germans talk about spending more money on their defense reaching two percent maybe other countries will reevaluate their positions um realistically you know what canada what can canada do why would it do it and uh, will we see a change in in canada's defense spending or are there other areas where you know for example refugees uh uh, cybersecurity, sanctions enforcement, that Canada could play a role outsized uh, and maybe unexpectedly for the Americans?
0: Um, Chris, uh, Scotty, uh, Canada should be doing all of this. Um, and um, I will tell you, I don't want to break news because not, uh, there's nothing that I know that you don't know. Um, but Canada is going to increase its defense spending. Um, it, can't, uh, it can't continue at this pace in this world. Um, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau said that uh, that uh, Vladimir Putin is going to lose. Great. What's Canada? What else is Canada going to put on the table? Um, and so let's get let let's let's applaud the Germans. The Germans have done a great job. They they too slow, but they uh, they understood pretty quickly. Now they you know they are right in the region. Um, but in this world that we live in today, we're, we are all in the region. And so let's just understand that. Let's uh, support the Canadian government as it as it endeavors to increase its its defense spending, and let's understand that Canada's defense uh, and tech and uh, tech sector is as good as any in the world. Um, and so you know this th- these can be dollars that are not spent on American systems or European systems. These can there is Canadian technology. Uh, that can be brought to bear and brought to the fight, and I can tell you um, there are American companies uh, that are using Canadian technology uh, and 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 spending a lot of money, and um, and I think some more um, government support on R and D, some more uh, purchases by D D. We need to um, we need to change, frankly, the way that some of these um, these acquisitions are resourced to make. Make them more efficient, uh, and make them more uh, just speed them along. Some of these things are just just choked up, taking way too long, um, and and we need to uh, to move that quicker and uh, get Canadian um, prowess. Um, you know, a lot of engineering prowess uh, can be brought to bear and put in the fight.
2: You know, it seems to me there are two other uh, Canadian assets, if you will. And I'm going to change this up a little. I'm going to pose this question both to you, Peter, but also to you, Chris. So in addition to uh, what we're talking about in terms of defense and technology, and Peter, I agree completely with your analysis of Canadian ingenuity and engineering and all of that. But in addition to that, it seems to me Canada's got two almost unique gifts. One is it's relatively open to refugees. And so Canada, we've seen that with Afghanistan. But what what do you think, what more could Canada do or what what should Canada do with respect to refugees coming from Ukraine? We've already talked about the the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, it's large. Um, so that's the first piece. And the second piece that Canada has is um, truly abundant natural resources. Canada has a lot of everything we need to power the economy, renewable uh Renewable capability in energy, but also traditional oil, gas, uh, nuclear, etc. So, should Canada be doing more in both of those? But I'd actually like you both to answer that, Chris. So sorry I didn't warn you, but uh, I I know you're up for it, Peter. You want to take a shot, and then maybe Chris.
0: Uh, Sure, I'm happy to go first. So uh, there's another, there's a third one. Uh, I, I agree with those two, and there's a third one which is space. I mean, just sheer size. So I'll do them in order. Number one, I think. Uh, I don't think this is a secret. It's not a state secret. Canada is big and empty, um, and um, my point of view, which is not in line with exactly any political position in, in Canada, is that Canada's immigration doors, refugee doors, should be wider open. Uh, they they are they are. I'm proud that they have been open as much as they are uh, in in the last few years, much wider than the American doors. Um, i think that there's still space for canadian doors to be open still wider um and there needs to be you know conversations between the political parties in ottawa on how to, how to do that but that is not only um a sur- a humanitarian service but that's a way to make canada stronger i mean it's 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 straightforward um, natural resources yes that's like canada's economy historically has been you know sticks and rocks and um, of course, Canada's economy has developed. Uh, it's a service economy, um, but as you say, Scotty, um, I do think um, getting, uh, getting uh, resources to market is really, really important, and I would include energy on that. Um, we, we, we Canada is an energy-rich country. I know that there have to be conversations about climate, um, but at the same time, um i don't know why we're united states is looking for energy um in venezuela and um iran when uh there's a lot more closer to home some of these barrels are dirty barrels um, and some of these barrels are very clean barrels uh, and there are enough there's enough access to very clean barrels uh, that can really make a difference in the world. Um, And I think Canadians should should know about that. Um, uh, And then third is what I mentioned with space. Uh, There's a lot of new technologies um, that require an incredible amount of space to test them. (laughs) Uh, These are planes, these are missiles, these are different technologies and Canada should be uh, volunteering to host uh some of these technologies uh, with its nato allies to get um you know this is one of the things we discussed uh at halifax last year is that the chinese and the russians are actually ahead of uh the united states and nato on hypersonic weapons uh part of that has to be ha- is increased testing and finding locations to test and and uh, canada can play a an important role in that regard
2: you know, I couldn't agree with you more, particularly on that final point. Canada does have airspace, uh, quite a lot of it. And there are a lot of US defense companies that do testing of aerial drones and other technologies in Australia, because that's another place that has lots of space. Um, and Australia makes money, they, you know, they rent, they rent their space by the kind of square inch. And so you could make money and build up uh, resources in some places that are not populated. And it will be interesting to see if Canada does that. And Chris, I'd love your thoughts on on the kind of relative advantages of Canada. And I should probably just put a little disclaimer or disclosure here for our listeners. I do work with provinces, in particular, the province of Alberta, the premier and the energy minister has a very strong opinion, I think, understandably on this, but uh, I'm in that fight. So I'm not totally unbiased. So anyway, you, you perhaps are so over to you, Chris.
1: Oh, well, you know, I I guess. uh, Yes. So my view in this is that the good and the bad is that Canada has been very blessed with energy resources, with know-how, with very smart people. And to some extent, and and I'm not complaining because this has been good for the United States, it, it has been focused so much on providing all that talent to the U.S. And what I'm hoping this crisis does and you know, just as an as an American who cares about Canada is helps Canadians to understand that as important as they are to the US, they're important as a partner of a lot of other countries. Uh, this week, we heard uh, Japan announced that they could not stop buying Russian oil and gas because they've been building some infrastructure and they are very much tied to that economy. And after the nuclear plant in Fukushima came, you know, was shut down, they really need uh, that fossil energy. Uh, We're hearing from Germans and others who, if they don't complete Nord Stream 2, need a source of LNG that's that's terrific. Canada has these things, but has difficulty getting infrastructure to the sea. And so much of our energy has been, oh, can we get through Keystone? Can we get through the United States? But I think what we have missed until now is that just as Canada was once the breadbasket of the world, producing grain and other products when other countries were bombed out and farming wasn't going well, now they could be part, really, the arsenal of democracy on the energy front and in other ways, providing those resources. And to not think, yes, we're worried about climate change and those things are important too, but we're talking about countries that are also committed to addressing climate change and want the cleanest barrel, to use Peter's phrase, the cleanest LNG in transition. And soon we're going to be talking about hydrogen too. And that's something that that where Canadians have technology that could go around the world. So this is going to sound strange. Americans love to beat their chest and prom- we're, we're self-promoters. We are. That's, our, that's part of our DNA. Canadians are often not. You know, they, they, they sort of say, well, you know, we're okay, but we're not, you know, we're not going to brag about it. Well, Canada should be bragging about it. And I think a lot of countries should see Canada anew in a crisis like this. And rather than doing it for the Americans or doing it for Canadian self-interest, there's a real advantage here if Canada is willing to develop its resources, develop the infrastructure to help its friends, allies who'd really like to do business with Canada if Canada was ready to do business.
2: Well, you know, the other piece of this, Chris and Peter, uh, related uh, to resource development is critical minerals and rare earths. And I wonder if you guys both want to jump in on that a little. I will say Canadian American Business Council has been saying for several years now, and it's something that uh, the Canada's previous ambassador, David McNaughton kind of, uh, defined for the bilateral relationship. Canada should be the processor of choice for critical minerals and rare earths. These are inputs that are used in not only defense goods and consumer goods, but also carbon transition technology, like electric vehicles, like solar panels. So, um, Peter, what's your, Halifax has been talking about critical minerals for a while too. What's it, where do you come down on that one?
1: I,
0: I agree, not only do I agree, but I think it's more important than ever, because um, the Chinese, uh, first of all, a lot of, the, I mean, just have to look at the map of the world. Uh, a lot of these um, resources are either in Russia or in Chinese, they're not so much in China as they are in areas that China is now controlling and have bought mines in, in Africa, other places. And so, um, as, as this conflict grows and lines are drawn, um, it's actually, you know, just as as we've put sanctions on on uh, the Russians, it's going to be uh, difficult to get uh, goods out of both China and Russia. And I think Canada, uh, again, just looking at a map, is going to become that much more strategically important uh, for these things. I also make the point that a lot of these things, including uh, lithium um, uh, and nickel that are inside batteries, uh, are already inside batteries and, and can be mined through recycling uh, and that is something that uh, we're not paying enough attention to right now we send the batteries back to Asia uh, to we uh, uh, old batteries are recycled and they're put on ships back to Korea or China uh, we should be keeping those batteries in North America and we should be recycling and taking there are there are there are means to Get almost 100 percent of the products out of existing batteries, and that is something that is you know um, pro environment that Canada I think uh, um, should, should be doing more
1: uh, more of as well. Uh, I couldn't agree more, and I think it's a it's a great testament that Canada is already thinking about this in a very uh, circular economy sustainable way. Um, uh, just a question for you, Peter, and, and it maybe goes into the side I work on a bit more, which is the economy. Um, it seems as though we're at a an important sort of pivot or crossroads where there will be supply chains, you know, hinged on China that um, operate as they have done, and yet supply chains in the West connecting Canada to the U.S. are going to have a higher standard um, where consumers wanna know the goods they buy, don't have any bad things from forced labor to uh, uh, you know any of the negatives we worry about, whether it's you know, whatever uh, individuals don't wanna to touch their values, they wanna make sure that's reflected in the product. And at the same time, um, institutional investors, companies going to them for capital, they wanna know like, is this company a best practice company? Is it operating sustainably? Is it meeting all these goals? And so we're being driven in the private, private sector in places like Canada, US, Europe to have more transparent and accountable supply chains. And as the US has wrestled with this, Canada uh, stands apart as a partner in verifying that the claims made, like we used to see the claims made for organic products that were and weren't organic, that there's a role to certify these claims and to keep our supply chains very high standard. And I think even though we think of that as an economic issue, it's a national security issue, too, to be able to operate in that high-standard world. Do you see Canada both setting the military aside for a bit um, as a potential economic partner of choice at that high standard? And what does that mean for Western unity if we're able to achieve that?
0: I think Well, it's a really timely question. It's a a complicated question, but it's a timely – during the pandemic, it was timely coming out of the pandemic, and it's uh, even more timely now during this war in, in Ukraine. Um, supply chains that have been depending dependent wholly on China are in the process of changing and that they're going to change even more. Um, and we are going to see um, uh, companies, both the Canadian companies, as you mentioned, but also American companies, uh, start, starting to move uh, their reliance, um, not only uh, in East Asia, um, but uh, in different places of the world. I think that you're gonna find um, uh, places that can be uh, reliable partners, both in the Middle East, in Africa, and in the Americas that are gonna substitute for for China. And I think it's gonna start happening pretty quickly now.
1: But that's also important on sanctions, too, because as we're thinking about Russian sanctions, if you're under sanctions, you're going to try to find a way to obscure origin, slip something through a third country and see if you can't bust the sanctions that way. That's got to be something that, from a security point of view, we're all concerned with, especially because the Western response in Ukraine has been so economic uh, in, in nature.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right. But again, I think that speaks to diversifying areas of the world where uh, where we are getting uh, um, uh, supplies from, and where and and what these supplies, these future supply chains are going to look like. But I think that's exactly right.
2: You know, listening to you two guys, Peter, I feel like we could talk for hours, um, uh, and we could cover the entire world uh, with. Uh, with you, it's such a, it's such a joy, uh, to have you, um, even in such an intense, crazy time. I mean, you know, I feel like you've been thinking about some of the more difficult problem spots of the world for years and years. And, uh, and I only, kind of dabble in them when I have to which is when I attend Halifax each year so so we're happy to have you share your your insights and your perspectives. I will say that while we were uh, recording this podcast uh, on my screen popped up uh, the dates you have dates for 2022. Uh, which are November 18th through the 20th, uh, 2022. And what I will say is, um, whereas I think in the early years the Halifax International Security Forum was really just for the people in the room. Uh, over you've evolved over time, and and there are parts of it that you can live stream, you can tune into, you can read about. And I would just um, suggest to our listeners if you if you don't follow Halifax on the Twitter uh, or your platform of choice, you might want to think about it because you, you might learn something just as I have learned a lot from my friend Peter Van Praeg today. I will also say while we're doing Save the Dates, Chris... Uh, that November 15th, right before the Halifax Security Forum, is the Canadian American Business Council's annual state of the relationship. So um, we're just going to go ahead and ask people to book out their Novembers for us right now, because uh, why not? So so with that, I just want to say thank you uh, to both of you. Um, and Chris, I'll, I'll turn it over to you for a final thank you. And Peter, you can say a, a last word if you like. But this has been a real joy. As, as hard as these issues are, uh, it's it's really good to um, to unpack them and to think about them and figure out how we can get involved you know intellectually, financially, physically, whatever whatever we can each do in our own way. So over to you, Chris.
1: I'm I'm just excited Scotty, because uh, connecting with Peter has given us confidence there will be a next tango in Halifax and uh, we'll all be looking forward to that one. I, I think Halifax has become a key part of the international security calendar. Uh, you just have to follow that conversation to know where we're headed in the very big picture way. And so as something of a a person who loves to read on this kind of stuff all the time, I'm I'm just glad, Peter, for your leadership on this. Congratulations on a a very successful run since uh well gosh, since twenty eleven when you became independent, even before then, uh, because you've been at this so long. Um, thanks for coming on Canusa Street today.
0: Chris, uh, it, it really, it's it, it's been a privilege to do this, and Scotty, thank you so much for including me. And uh, you know, it's been it's been my pleasure. So thank you, guys.
2: Great, to, great to have you, as always. Absolutely. Well, it's not every single day, Chris, that we can talk to a podcast guest. Uh, on topics as far ranging as critical minerals and rare earths, what to do about China, the aggression of Russia in Ukraine, and uh, everything in between, and Canada-U.S. relations and how they all fit in. So, um, I mean, well, actually, that's not true. People can talk about it, but knowledgeable people, where you and I learn something, that's that's magic. And I think we I think we experience some of that today.
1: Yeah, Peter really speaks to these issues with authority. But I love this conversation in the second episode because what Peter did is shared something that you and I get to see a lot, which is how Canada's multicultural, diverse, immigrant driven society, similar to the U.S., has a slightly different complexion and gives Canada, I think, in many ways, a unique window on what's happening in Ukraine because of the 1.3 million Ukrainian Canadians or what's happening. In Asia because of so many uh, Chinese Canadians or ethnically Chinese Canadians. It's a complex mix and you, you wouldn't always know it. Uh, we still tend to think of Canada as the land of Justin Bieber and Celine Dion, you know, kind of very European, but it's, it's actually a much more diverse society. Just ask Wayne Gretzky, perhaps the most famous Ukrainian Canadian uh, these days. Canada has a lot to bring to the table and they don't brag about it. But at a time like this, in a big crisis, it really pays to pay attention to what the Canadians are doing.
2: Well that's exactly right. And a couple of the issues we touched on, but they're they themselves are a whole other podcast. So we touched on forestry and of course Canusa Street. Um is talking about forestry, but we also touched on energy and carbon transition. And so Chris, I look forward to a future episode uh, where we dive even deeper into the question of how do you provide the world with the resources it needs, but do it in a way that is um, friendly to the planet and life-sustaining. So that'll be be a subject for another day, but I'm glad we got to kind of introduce the ideas today.
1: Yeah. Canusa Street is just a street, but it connects the world uh, to both Canada and the US. So great place to find out more about this amazing partnership. And I love our amazing partnership, you and me, Scotty. It's, it's uh, magical.
2: It's one of my favorite, one of my favorite collaborations ever. So thanks, Chris. We'll see you next time.
1: All right. See you next time.
2: This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council
1: and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show
0: and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.